we're just so grateful that as we go through this sermon series, God, of our story and thinking about our story, God, in our lives and making these awesome, incredible decisions to stop, to stay, to go, to start, all of these things, God, that you have given us a way to not erase the parts of our story that we may not want to tell, but you embrace them, God, and you rewrite them in a way that points directly to you, directly to your love, God, directly to your grace, to your power, to who you are as a God who offers redemption and who offers mercy, even when we don't deserve it, God, and for that we are so grateful, for that we praise you, God, this morning, for that we worship you. And I just ask that you bless every person here, God, who prays with me, bless every heart here, as we learn about you, as we praise you, God, everything that we do, that you be glorified through it because we love you so much. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. There's no such thing as blind faith. The whole idea of blind faith is a misunderstanding of faith. Faith uh, can only be faith in what is real. This ridiculous idea, which is so popular in our culture, that you know, if you want to believe, you've got to kind of check your brain at the door. That's absurd. I mean, it's totally wrong. Some of the greatest minds I've ever met—people that are just extraordinary, brilliant, thoughtful, uh, emotionally intelligent. Uh, emotionally mature people are people of faith in Jesus, and I think the tragedy of our culture and the culture that I grew up in is that you don't really see evidence of that. My dad came from Greece in 1955. My mom came from Germany in 1954. They met in an English class in New York City in Manhattan. We went to the Greek church, and it was a wonderful community. It was a... um, it was a warm community, but it was mainly a community built around the idea of being Greek. That's where the Greeks hung out, is in, in the church. So it was, it was an ethnic community, but it was not um, really very much a community of faith. My identity was getting good grades, being the smart kid, and so I, I just assumed that, you know, whatever, I should go to some, some good school. And, you know, I, that was not part of the culture that I grew up in. I mean, I went to a public school, Danbury, Connecticut. Nobody's talking about wanting to go to these... Ivy League schools, you know, of course you don't know what you're getting into. But I remember going to college and really thinking, I don't know what I believe. I have no clue. And I'm so open-minded that in an environment like Yale, particularly, it's a very secular environment. You know, by the time I graduated, I was really absolutely at sea. I had no idea what I believed or who I was. got tough. It was very unpleasant. I was 24, moved back in with my folks, and, uh, you know, my European immigrant parents were not thinking, oh, Eric wants to be a poet and a writer, and, you know, he's finding himself, and they, their attitude is, you should, like, find yourself a job. The only thing I could do to make a buck was I got a job as a proofreader at Union Carbide. It was a awful, awful time. I mean, it was to work in a corporate environment as somebody who thinks of himself as a humorist and a poet, and it was just horrible. In the middle of this agony, um, I met a guy. He was a graphic designer at Union Carbide, a little bit older than I was. He had a wife and a, and a kid, and he sort of befriended me, and we just hang out and talk, and he clearly was serious about his Christian faith. For a long time, that made me uncomfortable because I'd been trained at Yale. You know, we avoid people like this. These are, these are weird people. I remember this guy saying to me, Eric, you know, you should, you should pray that God would reveal himself to you. And I remember thinking, that makes absolutely no sense because if I don't even know if God's there, how am I going to pray to him? I don't even know if he exists. But if you're in enough pain, you'll do stupid stuff. So I'd be like jogging, and in my pain, I would just pray, God, if I need a sign, you know. I'm, I'm just trapped. I'm trapped in my own mind, my own way of seeing the world. There's just no way out. Then uh, my uncle Tykes, uh he had a stroke. I remember this friend of mine, Ed Tuttle, this graphic designer, 
said to me that some of his folks at his church were praying for my uncle. And I, I, I'll never forget that I was blown away by the, by the kindness of this. I said, wow, that's, that's kind of amazing that you, you don't even know my uncle and you and people in church are praying for my uncle. And, and I also was blown away by the intellectual concept that you're praying to this God that you think can heal people. So it's not just you know, some vague energy force. You're, you believe there's this God who cares. And I, I, was, I wasn't persuaded that this is real, but I was just moved by the concept of it. And then one day that week, he asked me, would you like to, would you like to pray for your uncle? And I said, yeah. You know, was like up till then, I was like, no, I don't want to pray. I don't want to do any weird, go to church or do Bible study. But my uncle was like, let's go pray. And so he um, takes me to this, you know, bleak, fluorescent lit conference room at Unicarbide, just awful. And we go in there and close the door and he prays. And I close my eyes. I had never done this before, ever. Now imagine, I grew up in the church. I was an altar boy. Nobody like prays, actually prays like that. passed away, but I remember at the funeral, the priest asked me if I would read the Psalms. It was just kind of this. Leave you with a bit of a cliffhanger there. You don't get to hear the rest of the story right this morning. That's a gentleman named Eric Metaxas. He's an author. He's a speaker. He's a commentator on culture. And that is a site called I Am Second. And you can see the rest of his story. And many other stories told at this site called IamSecond.com. Be a great place to visit. Today we're uh, we're talking about story. That's our series, and we're at the culmination of it. We're talking about telling your story. That's the key word today. Tell. And so I wanted to provide an example of a man telling his story, and it's got some commonalities that I think a lot of us can identify with. I know I do, and part of the thing I'm going to share today is my story interwoven with a story from the scriptures, and we'll have uh, four basic principles that I want you to uh, hear this morning in regard to you possibly telling your story of faith integrated with those that are in your world, in your relationships, in life. And my story is similar to his. I can relate to the blind faith idea, right? That uh, sometimes this notion that you just jump and there's really no rationality or evidence, that for me was a oddball thing. I didn't want any part of that. And this idea that he talked about this guy with the last name Tuttle, a relationship, somebody showed him a walk with God that was authentic, that was real, that became attractive to him. And the other thing that's similar to his story and mine is that I, I too went to Yale I didn't. I didn't. No, I didn't. So I wish that might have been part of my story. Now, stories, if you think about the telling of our stories, listening to stories, it's much like what I want to do today with movies and TV shows. Kind of the, they go to one part of the story and then they flip you over to another, then back. And I'm going to try that in my own way today. But it's interesting. I, I grew up um, in environments like you, uh, I have a wife, three daughters, and I find that they often pull movies, DVDs, off the shelves of stories that they've seen numerous times. And they want to go see them again and reconnect with that story, just like we do when we tell of things of our past and enjoy getting together with family members and friends and rewinding and retelling stories uh, we've been doing that all week here, right? The, the story of this team that wears black and orange colors. People are liking to tell their story right now. Could go to 6-0 and today. I watched the game yesterday, and there's going to be stories for a long, long time told of this Michigan versus Michigan State game in 2015. If you happen to catch that one, that was a wild, unique story played out through sports. So let's get started. Once upon a time, there was this guy named Jesus, and he wanted to go from where he was, which was a place called Judea in the south, to a place called Galilee, further north. And there was a territory in between that was the most direct route that was called Samaria. And he was going to go through Samaria. Now, that doesn't sound like any big deal to us. It'd be like saying, well, if I'm in Norwood and I want to go to Waynesville, I'll go through Mason. But in that day, Jews avoided 
Samaria. They avoided Samaritans because they were a mixed breed of Jewish blood and non-Jewish blood. They came through the captivity of Israel over many years, and a pure Jew thought they were less than. And they had practices and beliefs that weren't in accordance with Orthodox Judaism. And so to be a pure Jew, you, you kind of said, I'm not associating with those folks. They're less than. And it was a common practice not to have social connection, not to even walk through their territory. But Jesus is going to walk through their territory. And we're left to imagine whether that was just happenstance or whether he had a purpose in mind. I like to think the latter because of the story we're going to hear this morning. And he gets there in Samaria in a town called Sychar. And he's thirsty. He's been traveling and the guy's traveling with him called the disciples. They go to town. They're going to get some food. And he comes to a well and he wants to get something to drink. And there's a woman there. And she's come too as a Samaritan woman with a water pot to fill it with water. And they start connecting. They start having a chat. And their chat is about things like the backgrounds that they have that are different. Her a Samaritan, him a Jew, and a rabbi. They talk about water. Now, it has an interesting little dialogue to the talk about water, but it's why they're both there and they talk about water. They talk about religion, their backgrounds and worship styles and how it works in each of their people's. And how they do that. They even at one point, they get to a point where they talk about family. And this is a real unique part to that story. Many of you will recall that at one point, Jesus says, hey, why don't you go get your husband? And she says, well, I don't have a husband. He said, you know, that's true. You don't have a husband. You've had five husbands. And the one you have now is not your husband. And she goes, that's different. This guy is different. And she says something along the lines of, I perceive that you're a prophet. And not anybody's ever been able to say that to me before. But all that goes to say that Jesus took time to have a conversation, to relate back and forth, to listen and respond. And the first point I want to put forth this morning in terms of how we can think about telling our story is this. Listen before you tell. Listen before you tell. I would even go so far to say we should listen before, during, and after we tell. Because we need to read and connect with the people that we want to give our story, even our integrated faith story, to. And Jesus did that with this woman. He didn't go rushing in claiming, hey, I'm pure Jew and I'm rabbi. Listen, woman. He was a man. And they took on more of an air of authority in that society. And so he didn't do any of that. He just connected and listened to where she was at, what her issues were, what her thoughts were. He took time to listen before she was going to be told what he had to say. You know, my story is similar. I went to college, not at Yale, not at Harvard, but at Bowling Green State University. Up the road here a couple hours. And when I went there... The freshman year, we would hang out, hang out in the dormitory, find out about guys' different backgrounds, their stories of activities in high school, things they like to do, funny things that maybe happened in their particular friend environment, and and just connect. And one night, we were in a dorm room. I remember there were about six or seven of us. And we got on this topic somehow of a guy named Nostradamus. You heard of Nostradamus? Many of you, at least you older folks have. Nostradamus was a supposed future teller, one that was able to predict events that had happened long after the 16th, 17th century time of his era into modern day, world wars, assassinations of people like Lincoln and Kennedy. And and his writings seemed to point to these things in some people's minds. And there were some in our group that said, hey, I've seen the documentary. That guy's dead on. This stuff's true. It's wild, but that guy had amazing abilities. And then there were others that said, ah, come on. You can read into that. That stuff is kind of fluffy and general, and you can play it however you want. That's not really future telling. And so we had an impasse. And I remember somebody in the group said, hey, 
Go get the religious guy down the hall. He'll tell us about Nostradamus. Nostradamus is probably in the Bible. They got prophecies and prophets and stuff in there. Go get him. He'll settle this dilemma. Somebody went to get him. Now you need to know the backstory. This guy's name was Evan. And Evan was an upperclassman living in a freshman dorm. And he had done exactly what I just said in point one. He had listened. He'd listened to our lives as freshmen, our questions about the campus, where to go, how to get there, uh, why he ended up at Bowling Green State University. He wasn't quick to tell that. He listened, why were, why were we at Bowling Green State University? Uh, he would hang out in the hall and in the social environment of the dorm life. Uh, he was athletic, sharp, fun to be around, connected well. Now, there was this one part of him that he had thick Bibles like that he would carry off to some meetings on campus that we didn't quite understand. Sometimes he seemed overly polite. And then he had this glaring contemporary Christian music that would come from his dorm room that we were like, oh, jeez, let's stay away from that. But he had enough credibility having listened to us that we would invite him down to speak to our dilemma. And even in that setting, I still remember when he walked in and he didn't immediately go into tell mode. He listened, hey, how'd you guys get on this subject? What, what have you been talking about? What do you guys think about Nostradamus? And, and related, connected. And then he finally said a few things that he knew about Nostradamus, but then he posed a question to us. He said, you know, that's about all I know about Nostradamus. Sorry if I can't solve your dilemma, but I know something more about another prophet if you'd be interested in hearing about him. And we said, oh, huh, who's that? We, yeah, it's late, but we, we can listen. He said, oh, it's Jesus. Ooh, the mood in the room changed a little bit. There were some guys looking for windows to dive out, though we were on a third floor, so they couldn't do that. There were other guys kind of looking down, uncomfortable. And then there were a few that were like, eh, it's after midnight. This is what you do in college. Let's have a conversation. Sure, we, we would be willing to hear about Jesus. See, he listened, and then he was ready to tell. And it is important to know that we, we are called to tell, and it's a privilege to tell. And I, I have a quote here you'll see on the screen. Famous quote, we're not sure who to attribute it to. It goes like this, preach the gospel at all times. When necessary, use words. And there's a lot of us that resonate with that. And there's a lot of truth to that. What it's saying is that we live a life that speaks. Our life actions, attitudes, we're an example or a model of what we believe in this faith life. But many people go to this quote and says, ah, oh, good, that means I don't ever have to open my mouth and say anything about God or Jesus or my faith. You know, that personal stuff that we shouldn't talk about. And I think that would be a misinterpretation of this quote. I think it's very important that we tell the story of an authentic faith through our life, our actions, our everyday living. However, it's a great privilege and it's a call of God to also speak it with our lips, to tell it. And so we should tell. In Romans 10, verse 14, it says this, How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one in whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? Similarly, in the story that I've been telling you leading up to this woman in her interaction with Jesus in John 4, verses 25 and 26, it says, The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. See, he had a lot of interaction going on with her, but at some point in the conversation, he knew it was time to speak forth who he was, to share his story and his identity with her. And he stepped into that moment. He didn't leave her just wondering about this guy that knew about her marital relationships or not. He took advantage of the space that had been recreated. And I think about, well, how do we do that? How do we 
move into a territory that's not customary, not common, doesn't seem proper socially to bring this faith story dimension of who we are out into our everyday interactions. And I ran across something a couple years ago with some guys I partner with and work with in the movement called At Work on Purpose. And these are a couple guys that began to think about that in their own lives, in their own work lives. And they were folks that were very encouraging to other people in their workplace, a kind, looking for opportunities to bring benefit and blessing. But they got to the point where they thought, you know what, though? We are scaredy cats when it comes to people, even at times, wanting to hear why we are the way we are or what motivates us. We'll step back from it instead of stepping into it. And why do we do that? And they begin to maul this over and work on it and share it with other people to have a common sense of the fear that we all can face about how do we navigate this telling of our story really in everyday life. And they decided that they would uh, create a bit of a workshop to help people to think this through. And one of the main ingredients to that workshop that I really appreciate that I think could help us as an illustration example for us is that they decided that, you know, if we did it differently than maybe many of us in church life have been taught, it might work better. And that is, instead of looking for places to jump in and tell and spill the goods with all the scripture and Christianese and God language, why don't we just back up, maybe invite people to the break room or out for coffee or for a lunch that we kind of know or don't know and just ask them, hey, what's your story? Where have you been? What's your background? What are you interested in? How did you get here? Tell me about your family. And we just listened. We just listened. We let that person be spotlighted to hear their background. And it may be at some point in that conversation, we, we ask them, not as a manipulation, but just a, is there a, a faith background dimension to your life? Did you grow up with any elements of religion or faith? And, and let them say what they say about that. And then that's it. That's it. Go back to work. Go back to the office. Go back to your house. But what often happens when we do that is that out of courtesy and in social relationships, guess what? They will ask the same of us, whether it be inviting out for coffee again or stop by the cubicle or whatever. Hey, I'd be interested in your story. Thank you for listening to mine. And there it is. We have our chance then to speak about all those same things but also to put in the faith dimension of our life and who we are and why it's important to us. It's not preachy. It's not condescending. It's not manipulating. It's just exchanging stories and then letting God do with that what he will. The story goes on in John 4, verses 27 to 28. So after he says to her, I am the Messiah says at this point, his disciples came and they marveled that he had been speaking with a woman yet. No one said, what do you seek? Or why do you speak with her? So the woman left her water pot and went into the city. So she's gone. You see, this is one of those deals in my mind. I can only imagine maybe how Jesus would have thought about this. The disciples come back from town having gone to get food, and they come at exactly the wrong time. She just got to the point where her eyes are even wider. Not only does he know things about me that no man should know, he actually says he's the promised one that his people and my people have been waiting for, and he's getting ready to what? Seal the deal, give her the goods, help her to come to her own personal faith in him, and the disciples come. And it says here that they didn't say anything. It says they didn't say, what do you seek to her or why do you speak with her to him? But my bet is their body language did speak. Because they were in the same cultural phenomena of Jew and Samaritan. And my guess was the look on their face and their body language toward the woman was, what are you after with our guy? And I think their body language and look on their face to him was, Jesus, what are you doing? 
We're trying to protect your reputation, keep you up as a good rabbi, and you do all this crazy stuff all the time. You're doing it again. Didn't say that, but I bet it was the look on their face. I bet it was their body language. And if that's true and she saw that, she hightailed it. She left the pot and was gone. She left. And we're left to wonder, where is she going? What is she going to do? But the interesting thing is, and this leads to our second point, he didn't chase her. Didn't chase her down. Didn't rent a mule or a camel and catch up with her. I mean, he wanted to probably tell her, yeah, it's, it's virgin birth, my preexistent life with God outside of this realm. The miracle I did just a few weeks ago at this wedding. I mean, he could have unloaded a lot of stuff to amplify him as the anointed one, the Messiah, the promised one. But he did what I think we should do, and this is point two. Let God work the change. Let God work the change. And he teaches his disciples this in the meantime while this woman goes off to the city. And it's recorded here in John 4, verses 37 38. Thus the same, one sows and another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. He's teaching his disciples, you see, there's this way that God does the change. Ultimately, he does it, and he uses us. And some of us do some planting and watering, and others do some harvesting. It just depends on the timing of when you're intersecting with relationships. And so the pressure's off. You see, I know today this is a sermon. It's the culmination of start, stop, stay, go, focus, and now tell. It's action point, not just for yourself, but yourself through to other people. And that could be the type of sermon that you want to squirm out of and say, ah, I don't know. That's for you more bold people, you preacher type people to do. But the reality is if you feel that way, the pressure is off. God does the change. You just play your part. And he's teaching his disciples that, that they're going to actually get the privilege of reaping in people's lives, moving to God. But other people had done a lot of groundwork. In fact, the whole Jewish system had done a lot of groundwork. And he's teaching them that in this interim period while this woman is off to the city. You know, I think, too, of some of us that maybe don't have a story of conversion that's what you think is interesting or revolutionary because you came from really bad to really good and you saw the light and this and, hey, I just grew up in a Christian home and my folks taught it to me. I read the Bible stories, went to a good church, had good friends. Maybe that's your story and you think this this doesn't apply. Well, I think it does. I think it does. That's a, a real story, too. It's a testimony of faithful people around you and sustaining a life of faith that many people are willing to hear. And God can work his change through that story, too. You know, back to my story with Evan in the dorm room, I remember very distinctly that I didn't feel that he was trying to save me or convert me either. He was letting God produce the change. And it was done in this way. I remember the conversation that night didn't end until about 3 in the morning. That's what you do as a college student, right? And I remember being all kinds of different reactions under observance in that room. Um, mine was, wow, this speaks a lot of the things that I always wondered about. That when as a kid growing up in some religious system i'd ask questions the unfortunate thing would happen to me is i would get patted on the head and just say little ronnie that's what we believe just go with it and i used to think you know what these people don't even know why they believe what they believe and they're adults they're supposed to know gosh when i get old enough to make my own decision i'm ditching this i don't want any part of this seems to me you should be like that guy that talked on the screen before you should have some sense, evidence, rationality to why you would choose to entrust yourself to something as a belief. 
And that's the mentality I had. But in that room, this guy had reason for his belief. He had backing for his reason and knew why the backing was authoritative and reliable, the Bible. And I thought, man, I want to move toward this, but this could be an emotional experience. This could be a cult. They may want to take all my money. This sounds too good to be true. And so I wanted to give it time. And and this guy didn't press me. He said, yeah, I understand that reaction. In fact, if you want to read up on some of the questions you have, I, I have some books and resources if you would like to read those to help you sort this out. And I'm available to you. If you have other questions, um, things you want to talk about, I'm just down the hall. I'll be glad to talk to you. He was letting God do the change. No pressure tactics. And that leads to the third point. Third point is explain Jesus and the gospel. Explain Jesus and the gospel. And here's what I mean by that. See, so often we can, uh, out of our timidity, uh, worry about what the other person thinks, um, the awkwardness of such a conversation, we kind of want to get it over as soon as we can if we've entered into it and they haven't got up and left or put a tough question on us. We, we kind of want to end with phrases like this. Well, and, and then in my story, I just believed. Or I surrendered all. Or I invited Jesus into my life. Or I was born again. Or I was saved. You've heard these phrases. You maybe have used these phrases. I got right with God. And there's nothing wrong with the phrases in and of themselves. But if you think about it, when we're talking to people where they may be coming from a different place, they don't know what those things mean. They don't know what those things mean. If you say, I surrendered all, you surrendered all, like you, you gave up your car and your house and your family? Uh, huh? I invited Jesus into my life. So he has to be invited and then he goes away and you got to invite him back. How, how, how's that? Born again? Are you some kind of weird freak? What? Born. You see, these expressions may mean something to us, but they don't often connect well with other people. And so just to leave that out there as your ending statement for your story and your change, I don't think is quite enough or can be confusing. And so that's why I say in our third point, explain Jesus in the gospel. And I can remember in that dormitory room how this friend of mine did that so well. And it's really just his story interwoven with the basic gospel content. I remember very clearly in so many words he said it's, it's just this. He said God has a plan. And that plan is illustrated in a verse in the Bible in John 10. It says that I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. That's his plan for every person. I said, ah, cool. That's, that's good. I want abundant life. And then he said, but there's a problem. The problem is that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that the wages or what you earn for sin is death. Death meaning not only physical death, but a spiritual death, a separation from God for all eternity. And I thought, ooh, I don't like that. That's, that's a bad P. The first P was good, plan. Problem's not a good one. But then he went on. He said, you know that verse I just said that the wages of sin is death. It goes on and it makes a provision. The provision is... But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And he added some other verses about the provision of Jesus. That it says that even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's, it's mercy, not judgment. That song we just sang before I got up here. That God chooses mercy to come toward us versus just standing in judgment. He offers mercy even while we're yet sinners. And then he used a verse, I remember it distinctly, because he did a little something with it that was unique. He said, and, you know, Jesus claimed to be that provision. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And we're listening. You can see people leaning in and thoughts being circulating up here with six, seven guys in the room. But then he said, hey, guys, let me ask you a question. I'm going to say that statement that jesus said in a little different way and and i want to know what you think about it we said okay he said well what if he would have said i am a way a truth and a life you can come to the father through me what, what do you guys think of that and we immediately said oh we like that better 
That's better. Good. It's good to hear that's in the Bible. He said, that's not in the Bible. He said, I I like to put that out there because as I get to tell my story, him speaking, he says, I find that people like it said that way better. Why? Because, gosh, there's more options. There's many roads that lead up the mountain to God. Just pick a road and they'll lead there. You're you're a way. You're a truth. You're a life, Jesus. Others got others they can pick. Seems more tolerant. Seems more inclusive. And we had all those answers. He said, you know, guys, I want to level straight with you. This is why I want to talk to you truly about what Jesus said. He didn't say that. He said he is the way, the truth. The life. It is exclusive. It's the best way. It's the abundant life. But you need to know what he truthfully said. And I thought, wow, man, that that puts me on decision point here, if I believe that or not. But he took the time to explain Jesus and the gospel. He didn't leave me with just some notion of getting close or thinking I understood what it meant. And then he closed with a fourth P. He had plan, problem, provision. And the fourth one was personal choice, personal choice. And that's where he said, you know, you can have whatever church background, religion, or mental intellectual assent toward there being a supreme being. But if you don't choose to accept this gift for the payment of your sin through Jesus, then that separation from God still is upon you. And you need to make that choice. Nobody can make it for you. Your parents, your pastor, your religious system, only you can make it. And that's up to you. And he said another verse from the Bible that says, uh, to as many as receive him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. And he explained that to us too. He said, you know, it doesn't say everybody's a child of God. It says those who receive him for who he is, for what he does, they get eternal life. They become children of God. And I thought, wow, I didn't speak it out loud, but it blew my circuits in here. I was always taught when I walked around that we're all children of God. But he made a distinction. We're all creation of God. But only those who received him are children of God and gain that family privilege, that belonging, that acceptance into his kingdom, into his abundant life. Similarly, as we follow the story here of Jesus with the lady at the well, he says to her after she again exclaims, well, it's actually her speaking to the townspeople in John 4:29 and then 39:42. She says to them, "Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ?" Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Notice what happened there. Really, all she understood when she left town was when she expressed it to these townspeople, He knows everything I've ever did. Something unique to this man. He's talking about being the Messiah. Could it be? Well, they want to see too. And they come and they hurry and he stays with him. But they don't just leave with some magic guy, some future teller, some prophet. They leave concluding this is the savior of the world. You see, he taught them. He explained who he was and what the good news is. And now they had their own story. They weren't just buying off on her story. They had their own story. And isn't it great to think about as we sit here today, if you've accepted that gift of Jesus' payment for your sin, that you are connected to this story 2,000 years ago. Because the story kept getting told by somebody else to somebody else in communities, in faith gatherings, in workplaces. And we sit here today because the story got passed down. Whether in a dormitory room, through a family member, or for a workmate, you've connected to the story. Last point. 
tie in your current story. Tie in your current story. And you'll notice if you've been taking notes, this is the word tell spelled backwards. And I did that on purpose because I wanted to start with that point that it's somewhat backward to think that you actually listen to people first before you tell. Tie in your current story. What do I mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is that the whole idea of salvation in the scripture is a past, present, and future reality. So a lot of times we tell the story as I have this morning of being in the dorm room, hearing what was said to me, Jesus explained, and the the rest of the story is two weeks later, I did make my own personal invitation to put my faith in Christ, accept him into my life. But we can sometimes stop there and say, well, that's my story. Well, no, that's not just the only part of your story. It's an important dimension. It's fun to share. It can connect with people wherever it is. But you need to share other dimensions of your story. Things like the tough times. The times when you're going through things and you actually doubt whether God's involved, connected. Because that authenticity, that vulnerability, even around people that yet to believe is real. And they connect to it. It doesn't sound like a religious person with a bubble around them that you can't really touch for real life. And so I think sharing your current story of the ups, the downs, the connections you're still having with God as it fits whatever conversation you're in is so key. Because I can remember one year later, if you would have talked to me after I had this experience and I got in a Bible study and I was learning about the Bible and God, one year later though, I had decided to straddle the fence. I was basically still doing some of those things, but I also had got caught back into my old world, my old friends, my own preferred pleasures. You see, because when I went to Bowling Green State University, I'd gone for three reasons. They weren't noble reasons, but they were the true reasons. One was, first, I went because I wanted to keep up my significance. Significance for me was basketball player. I played basketball in high school, had a decent high school career. I dreamed of playing in college. And the colleges that had an interest in me playing were very small. They were smaller than my high school. And when I went to visit them, it was like, oh, this isn't the dream. There's, even, there's not as many people here. Oh, I'm going to try to play at a bigger school. And so I thought I was going to go to Bowling Green State University, try to be a walk-on and train like a maniac, be in the dorm that's right by the new recreation center. Because I wanted to protect my identity, my popularity. Who I was was basketball player. And gosh, if I didn't have that, what will people really think of me? Now, I didn't speak those things out loud, but that's what was going on. That was my significance. The other reason I went was security. It's the stuff that I keep in here. I wanted to be a business student, and for the state of Ohio, Bowling Green was considered one of the better business programs at the time. And I thought, man, that's my route to security is cash, money, bank, and i got to make a lot of it. And so I'll stay academically at the top of my game. I'll do the interviewing process really well. I'll get into that good company, and I'll have bank, and I'll be secure. My third motivation First two were significance, security. The third one was satisfaction. And that for me was measured in relationships with the opposite sex. And I had had some experience with a girlfriend in high school and wanted to translate some of those experiences similarly with more girls in college. And when they took you on a tour at Bowling Green State University, they said the girl to guy ratio here is three to one. And I said, yes, I need that. That will help me. See, real noble reasons, right? But God turned that all upside down. He showed me a different dimension of significance, of being connected to the God of the universe as a child, that security for eternity was in what he did on my behalf that could never be taken away. The payment for sin was in full. It would never come back on me. That could be the most secure thing I could ever have. And satisfaction, satisfaction was in a relationship with God and then with other people in the context of how he provided guidance and rules from his scripture, not in the way that I was pursuing women. 
And a year later, as I was telling you, I started to ditch all that reality and realization and started going back. And I straddled the fence and I thought, I've got this figured out. I can be religious guy, Christian guy in certain groups, in certain dimensions, on certain days, and then I can be the old Ron in other days, in other ways. And some of you think that too. And I'm not here to condemn you, and this isn't a condemning message at all. But you don't want to play that. That's not the abundant life. You've got to always be looking over your shoulder. You're not getting all that God would have for you. And I didn't realize that. I thought that was the game. And I had a friend, it was the same guy that shared with me in the dormitory room that night, who he saw it. And he had the courage mixed with love to come to me and say, Ron, you're playing a game. And this is hard for me to tell you that. And it's awkward. And I don't know what you're going to do. And I remember thinking, oh, I know what I'm going to do. I could feel the emotion just rising here. I'm going to cuss you. I'm going to say, you shouldn't be my judge. Who do you think calling me out? But fortunately, because the Spirit of God lived in me and started to take some ownership of my emotions and my thinking, I didn't say that. Why? Because it was true. (laughs) He was speaking what was true. And he didn't have anything to gain by telling me this. He was putting himself on the line in a friendship out of love to help me not take a course that he knew wasn't the best. And I thank him to this day for having that conversation with me. But that was the reality I would have had to share with you a year into this relationship. Ten years later, I could talk of going all over the world sharing my story and God's story with people from all kinds of different countries in a job with Athletes in Action. And loving it. And having it connected to sports, my love, and connected to faith. What a great ride. That would have been part of my story. If you go back two weeks ago, part of my story would have been to have to be honest to say that in a conversation with some other men in a Bible study, I had made the statement, well, I really wasn't moving in towards sin. I was just... And I remember the Spirit of God kind of capturing my thinking at that moment saying, Ron, you're rationalizing. You're cleaning up a reality in yourself that's not really true. I had just been studying the book of James, and there's a passage in the book of James that says, he who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. And I'd been mulling that over, realizing, you know, it's not a list. It's not the good guy list and checking boxes of Christian duties and doings. Sometimes it's the prompting of the Spirit to do something, to be something, and if we push it aside, we quench it, to us, that is sin. And what I was describing there was exactly that. I was denying that I had chosen a path that wasn't sin by most people's definition, but I knew it was God that was moving that direction. And I had to admit to those guys, my story right now is that I'm pushing back on God. I'm ignoring his promptings. Have I lost my faith? No, I'm just being honest to the current story that's going on. People will respect that. They will trust your vulnerability and your reality. And to conclude, in this series, we've been encouraged to jump into some life groups. And some of us have. Some of you probably haven't. We did. My family, we said, hey, we haven't been in a life group for a little while. We have for many years in this church. And we met some new people. And it's been fun to, over the last few weeks, with these people we don't know that well, hear their story. We've taken time just to... Hey, everybody, tell your story of how faith integrated with you at some point in life and where you're at now. Precious time. But there's one man in there. His name is John. And John has been telling stories of his workplace where he's being able to tell his story at his workplace in a very natural, low-key way. What's happening is people are kind of curious by the way he lives life. He's not shouting Bible verses. He's not chasing people down halls with Bibles. But he is sincerely talking in social lunchtimes that about his group that he's enjoying going to. What group? Well, it's a group tied to my church. Well, what do you talk about? And they're interested. They're asking him the questions. He's having a conversation. And even this last week, he told about how they asked, what's the snack that the people brought this week? They're down to that level. They want to know what the snack is brought to the group. And they ask about, well, did you have any handouts? And we've had some handouts. And he takes them to work and says, here here they are. How would you answer these questions? He's leading them in a faith story discussion naturally. 
just because it popped up and his manner is such that they trust him and his authenticity. And I want you to think about that as we close and I pray. We've been writing on the floor over the last six weeks different ways that we can, in a sense, make a statement to our God and to ourselves about something we want to stop, start, go, stay, focus. Today it's tell. Here's what I'd ask you to do. If that's something you feel prompted of the Lord to do today, have a little mini prayer time with him before you stop out or walk out and write on the floor the name of somebody you really care about that you would love to have the privilege if God would give you the time, the courage, the right setting, and ask him to do that to to somehow tell your story interwoven with being able to speak about Jesus and explain who he is. It's just between you and him. It's a name. It'll go on the floor. But maybe someday you'll walk through here again, and you'll remember wherever you wrote that. It'll have carpet over it, and maybe God will take your story to influence that person's life. And that'll be a special place that you'll walk over to say, wow, I remember I did that. And guess what's going on in Joe's life, Sherry's life, Barb's life, whoever it is. If that's for you, do that this morning. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the opportunity to talk about story through these numbers of weeks. I pray, God, that you'd help us to be in tune with you, that you're doing a story work in us through everyday things, everyday relationships, not just church on Sunday, not just a life group, not just when we're in crisis. Help us to tune in to your guidance, to your leading, and in our using our story, both from the past and in the present, to be able to share with other people who are often curious who are often willing to have the exchange about things of life, even faith life. Would you give us courage? Would you give us opportunity? Would you even do a special supernatural work in the lives of these names that we're thinking about right now? Family members, friends, people in our workplace that we care about. Help us to be your instruments, your tools and possibly creating an integrated faith story in Jesus in their life. And I pray it through your son. Amen. Have a great day.